All right, if you're having a seat, please turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. And as we begin, I'm going to share with you a little bit of wisdom on love and marriage that I gleaned from the internet. Um, all of this wisdom is from kids who are uh, aged like about five to nine years old. So on uh, what falling in love is like, this little boy named Roger, age nine, he said, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. <laughs> Leo, age seven, he said, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It will take too long. <laughs> Bobby, age eight, he said, love will find you even if you keep trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. <laughs> Gary, age seven, on the role of good looks and love. He said, it isn't always just how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't got anybody to marry me yet. (laughs) What do most people do on a first date? On the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough for a second date. (laughs) A little little truth to that, right? Okay. Is it better better to be single or married? Lynette, age nine, she said, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need somebody to clean up after them. How can you tell if two people are, are, uh, who are adults who are eating at dinner are in love? Brad, age eight, he said, people in love will just be staring at each other and their food will get cold. Other people care more about the food. <laughs> How do you make love endure? Randy, age eight, he said, be a good kisser. Might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. <laughs> All right, so I thought I'd give you guys just a little lightness to start because we're going to talk about a really heavy topic. We're going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about divorce. So for some of you, I think this morning, this will be really challenging and really encouraging. And then for others of you, it's just going to really hit a very, very tender place in your heart. Uh, I feel pretty confident saying that uh, probably everybody sitting here has been touched by divorce. Right? It's just so prevalent in, in our society today. It may be that uh, you're from a divorced home or you've had friends or other family members who've been divorced. Or maybe you have children who are going through a divorce. Maybe you've been part of a divorce yourself. Um, it's, really, it's a really tender topic, and it, it matters, right? Marriage matters to us. It affects our lives deeply. Marriage matters to God, and so, uh, you know, I think it's important for us to acknowledge once in a while when we touch on these really tender topics that, that God cares about those deepest and softest places in our heart, and God's Word speaks to these things. So we're going to talk about marriage and divorce from the book of Malachi, and then we're going to move into the book of Matthew, and then we're going to come back to Malachi. So if you're not already there, I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading in verse 10. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in, in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. 
So a little bit of background here. In Malachi's day, there were two social, spiritual problems that were going on as it related to marriage. The first was marriage of a believer to an unbeliever, and the second was divorce without biblical justification. So we're going to take each of those in turn. First, marriage of a believer to an unbeliever. If you want to read with me again in chapter 2, in verse 11, it says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So apparently what's happening in Malachi's day is that Jewish men were marrying foreign women, which uh, the the problem was not interracial marriage, right? Let's be really clear. Uh, The Bible does not concern itself with interracial marriage, and you have to look no further than the genealogy of Jesus, right, which has uh, three non-Jewish women in the genealogy of the Messiah himself, right? There was Tamar, who was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. And then Ruth, who was a Moabitess. Uh, Moses himself was married to a Midianite woman. So the issue is not interracial. The issue is interfaith. Remember when we started the series, we said that our background is actually the book of Nehemiah. So if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, it gives you a little historical context. It says, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children have spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, right? So Jewish men are marrying women of the land, women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, who don't speak Hebrew. And as they raise their children, their children don't learn Hebrew. They consequently can't understand the Hebrew scriptures. They introduce foreign gods into the home. And the Lord says to them, this is, in fact, dealing treacherously, right? The next generation will not worship me. Why? Because you've brought those who hate me into the most intimate of relationships that forms our culture. Right? For our relationship with the Lord, it's always viewed in family terms, right? God's the father and we're his children. We're his sons, we're his daughters. Or God says, I'm the husband and you're the bride, you're the wife. And now what have you done? Into this intimate relationship, you've brought someone who actually hates me. And you're training the next generation to reject me. He says, you're destroying the culture, and you're destroying the culture's love for me. Five times, he says, this is dealing treacherously. It's acting out of bad faith. So what's the application for us? Well, I mean, it's pretty direct, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should marry someone who also believes in Jesus Christ. Paul reiterates this point in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says very simply, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So you see the metaphor that he's building. Uh, The yoke is what went across the neck of the oxen. He said, if one oxen is tall and one is short, one is strong and one is weak, one pulls left, one is right, how how can you plow a row that's straight? Which is a metaphor for a life that's lived well. So if you love me, marry someone else who loves me, and then your life will go well. Now, if I can make a little further uh, extrapolation on this, I noticed as I was walking in, I've interacted with a few of you, we also have some folks here who are not married. And if the application is that as a believer you shouldn't marry someone who's not a believer, then you probably shouldn't, if you're single, date, there we go. (laughs) This can be interactive. You shouldn't then date someone, right? Because dating sometimes actually leads to marriage, right? Some might even say that's the point of marriage. Uh, My kids wouldn't. Right? My kids wouldn't. I, we've had a lot of interesting conversations at my house right? because apparently I don't understand the vocabulary that works today. Right? There's a, a totally different vocabulary 
that works in today's day and age. And so, you know, I asked my kids, okay, those two friends, are they dating? They're like, oh my gosh, no, Dad, it's not that seriously serious, right? They're just hanging out or they're just talking, right? Am I getting it right? Or they're just talking. I'm like, so what does that mean? They're talking. Well, that really, that just means they're texting. They're just texting. But if they're hanging out, they're actually physically in the same space together, right? And I'm like, well, you know, the point of dating, guys, is, is marriage, right? So are they dating? Oh my gosh, no, not that serious. And dating is not for marriage. I go, well, so what's the point? I kind of, I win that one, right? So what is, what is the point if you're not trying to explore to find somebody that you might, in fact, want to spend your life with, right? So, I mean, I, I, Tristan and I used to do college ministry before I got this gig, and uh, we interacted with lots of students, and I would get a lot of excuses, and they'd say, well, actually, I feel like God's called me into this person's life who's not a believer because I get to share the gospel with them, right? So they might trust Christ because we're dating, and I go, you know, maybe they might, but that's not the point of this relationship. Well, really, we're just hanging out, and I won't give my heart away. I go, really? You're going to spend a lot of time with this person, and you're going to reveal the things that are most deep and intimate about you, but you think you can protect your heart. Uh, I had a really, really close uh, relative of mine, actually, who said that. And she said, well, I'm not going to marry him. I won't fall in love with him. And she spent months and then a year, year and a half. And by the end of that point in time, she was in love. Right? And so then she, she turned off, in a sense, her relationship with the Lord to give her an excuse to pursue this relationship with this man. The other excuse that I've heard so many times is, um, you know, I might not ever fall in love again. Right? This might be my last chance. I'm getting older. I'm like 22 and about to graduate. Right? <laughs> Which, kind of poking fun at that a little bit, but I will tell you personally, I get that. So when I graduated... Uh, I wasn't dating anyone, and then I wasn't, and you know, it was not until I was almost 31 years old. I thought I'd get married at 22, but I didn't. Right? We talked about that, expectations, and it was really hard to wait. And I had to do a lot of business with the Lord as I gave him some, you know, one of the deepest longings in my heart. I wanted to, to be married, and I wanted to be a father. I, I had thought about these things. I wanted them. And I learned in that process that that, that, that act of waiting... And clinging to the Lord when you're, you're not getting what you want, when you want, is one of the greatest sanctifying tools that the Lord has in our lives. And he's saying to us, trust. Right? So if, if you're not married, wait. Right? Cling to the Lord. And don't, don't date and don't marry someone who is not a follower of Jesus. Now, let me put one caveat on this. If you're already married to someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, then stay. Right? Stay in your marriage and walk with the Lord. Paul also addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. In other words, don't get into the relationship expecting that you can get that person saved, but if you're already in, then yeah, live differently in front of them. It, It may not be that it's appropriate day in and day out to leave the four laws on the kitchen table, but... Live differently, right? Paul says that, in a sense, has a sanctifying influence on that unbelieving spouse and on your children because you're walking with the Lord in that context. If you're not married, don't marry an unbeliever. But if you're already married, then stay in it and remain faithful. Second issue that they were struggling with in this day was divorce without biblical justification. So turn back to Malachi chapter 2 with me again and read verses 13 and 14. 
Malachi says this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the second thing that appears to be happening is that Jewish men were, were divorcing their Jewish wives, probably in the context, in order to marry these foreign women. Well, well, why? We don't know. The context doesn't tell us anything. It may have been for financial security, right? Broaden their, their network a bit, their family network. Uh, it may have been that they were just different and exotic, right? The grass is always greener, and maybe they're looking outside. But Jewish men were divorcing their Jewish wives, and that without biblical justification, uh, which raises the question, well, what is biblical justification? I want you to put a pause on that for just a minute because we're going to dig deeply into this. But what I want you to notice first is this. Because of their sin and because their sin was unconfessed, it was creating a barrier in their relationship with the Lord. Their, their worship was hindered because they weren't willing to acknowledge sin and confess sin. So if you read with me again in verse 13, it says, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So what Malachi is saying is you keep showing up to the temple. You keep making your offerings. You keep weeping and saying, Lord, why will you not accept this? Why will you not accept this? Why will you not accept this? And Malachi says, he's already told you why he won't, you, he won't accept this. It's because you're, you Jewish men are divorcing the wives of your youth and you're not even willing to admit that you've done wrong. And sin creates separation. Right? Sin, sin always creates separation because God is absolutely holy. So let me put this in the context of our lives, right? Uh, we're born into this world as sinners. We, we just inherit that. We inherit it from our parents. We inherited it from their parents. We inherited it from their parents. Inherited it from Adam and Eve. We're born into this world sinful people. And then we begin to act out as such, right? It's, it's inevitable. And our sin continues to create separation from God. It's called death, right? Sin, uh, sin separation is called death because death fundamentally is a separation, it's a separation of our spirit, our inner man from God. And so we're born separated or we're born dead. And then we come to this moment where we understand the gospel, that Jesus died to remove that barrier of separation. And if we believe, he reunites us. That is regeneration. He makes us alive together. Death is removed. Life is brought into us. We believe our spirit is reunited with the spirit of God. Right? And we're brought into the family of God. We just believe and we say, God, thank you. And he saves us. He rescues us. He regenerates us, and he adopts us into his family. So now we're sons and we're daughters, right? We're in God's family. And because God is so loyal to his family, we can never leave his family. We can never run away from his family. We belong to him. But even within the family, sometimes we continue down our old patterns, right? We're sons and we're daughters, but then we behave like outsiders, right? And that sin creates separation inside of the family, right? If you uh, are a child or if you have ever had children, which... Okay, that's all of us. You either are a child or had children, right? You, we're in those relationships in the family where there was uh, sin, there was disobedience, there was rebellion, child to parent. And what happens? Parents say, well, you're, you're not mine anymore, right? You're gone. No. Good parents say, I love you. But man, things aren't right between us. And when the child digs in his or her heels and says, I will not acknowledge sin, I will not confess I will not move, then there can't be reconciliation back to the parent. But the moment there is a, a sense of seeking forgiveness, 
reconciliation is quick, right? As parents, we want our children reconciled to us. So we reach out and go, yes, I love you. I forgive you. Let's move forward. Let's move on. That's what John was talking about in 1 John. Speaking to believers, right? Speaking to sons and daughters. Speaking to people who are in the family. He said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if we say we don't have sin, we're, we're liars, right? We do. But he's made a provision that is the payment of Jesus Christ. And so the moment that we confess to the Father, he says, well, of course I'll forgive you. Why? Because I already paid that debt in Jesus. Let's restore intimacy of the relationship. So what's happening in Malachi's day is they're going, what? there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. We're all good. And God's saying we're not good because you won't acknowledge this wrong that's been done. You have committed divorce without any biblical justification. So which raises the issue, what then is biblical justification for divorce? I want you to uh, hold your place here, Malachi, and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 is Jesus' clearest teaching and most extensive teaching on divorce. And what I want to say here is... um, this is a super, super complex topic, and, and I've, I've sat, sat, unfortunately, with many couples whose marriages are struggling or who uh, are going through divorce or have gotten divorced, and every situation is unique at some level. So I can't, from the text, address every single unique situation, but I want to give you just a few principles from the Bible, and then we'll try to apply wisdom to the particulars of different situations, okay? So Matthew chapter 19, let's begin by reading... In verse 3, so some Pharisees came to Jesus and they were testing him. And they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The first principle is this. Divorce is never commanded. It's just permitted. The Pharisees come and they're always trying to trick Jesus or trap Jesus or pull him into this argument. And they say, so why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he says, no, you missed the point. Moses permitted. There were some permissible cases, but divorce is actually never commanded. Now, what's going on here in Jesus' days, there's actually a, a pretty significant argument that's going on between two rabbinic schools. The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And they're having an argument over the correct interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. Particular, a particular phrase, actually, within this verse. It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Now, the argument was, what's the proper translation and interpretation of the phrase, some indecency in her, which is literally the nakedness of a thing. Okay? It's, a, it's a pretty ambiguous phrase. So they're arguing and they're fighting. The two schools of thought, Shemai and Hillel, said this. 
Shemai said, an indecent matter means adultery. Hillel said, it should be translated, indecency or another matter. That is, you can divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever or no reason at all. So notice what it says in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And you could put quotation marks around any reason because they are asking him to make a ruling on the debate. Do you agree with Shammai? The Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 should be adultery specifically or Hillel, indecency or any other matter because the school of Hillel, which not surprisingly was more popular, said you can divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever, right? So it could be adultery or it could be that you don't like her cooking, you don't like her cleaning, you don't like the way she raises your children, you don't like the way she does her hair, or you could just divorce her and not give any reason at all on the certificate of divorce, which is correct. Now, interestingly, that second uh, form of divorce certificate is probably what Joseph wanted to give to Mary. Okay, remember the context. Mary got pregnant, and Joseph makes the natural assumption, well, she must have had uh, intercourse with someone other than me. She committed adultery during this betrothal period. So he tries to put her away quietly. That is, he tries to give her one of these divorces and not write any reason on the divorce, not write adultery on the divorce certificate so that he wouldn't brand her as an adulteress, right? That's the context. So Jesus is being asked, make a decision. And he lines up with Shammai. He says, no, Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 is specifically about adultery. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that adultery is the only biblical, biblically permissible reason. Jesus is saying is Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 just applies to adultery. There were other biblically permissible reasons for divorce that just weren't up for debate. That phrase was up for debate. The other phrases were not up for debate. So what were the biblically permissible reasons? I'm going to give you three. The first, obviously, was adultery, or as it was defined, immorality or indecency. But the second was abandonment. The Apostle Paul addresses abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If your spouse leaves, that is, you're abandoned, let them go. There's nothing that you can do if that person leaves, and then he says, and then you are free. That is, they've broken the certificate of marriage, they've broken the covenant vows, and having broken those, you are free. That is, you are free to remarry. So abandonment was one of the other biblically permissible reasons for divorce. It just wasn't up for debate. The third was abuse or endangerment. This was not up for debate either, because abuse and endangerment was criminal in their culture. So Three reasons biblically permissible, adultery, abandonment, and abuse. But let me just say this. The principle is this. Divorce is never commanded, but it, but it is permitted. So if your spouse in particular uh, commits adultery against you, are you commanded then you must get a divorce? Well, no, not necess- no, not necessarily. You can still seek reconciliation. Um, if you're abandoned you may not have uh, any recourse, right? There may be nothing that you can do if you're abandoned by your spouse. They present you with the, the divorce papers. You may just be in a place where there's nothing else you can do to reconcile. Abuse and endangerment, it may simply not be wise for you to continue to leave yourself in a position where you could be abused and endangered, right? And that's where really, I think, church, we have to step in for one another, right? And support one another, 
whether it's adultery or abandonment or abuse, whether we're encouraging one another to continue to move toward reconciliation or whether we're protecting and supporting one another in an abandonment or abuse situation. Okay. Second principle is this. Divorce is not the final word. You may come from a divorced home and it just hangs over you like a cloud. Divorce is not the final word. Right? You, can, you can move on and forgive your parents and you can reconcile and you can learn to trust and you can get married. One, my closest friend is from a divorced home and he's an incredible husband and he's an incredible father. He, didn't, he never saw it at home, but he learned it. Right? Or if you are the victim of divorce, God can, God can bring healing and he can be, bring reconciliation. He can bring a wholeness to your life whether you get married again or whether you don't. If you cause a divorce... There may be some damage done in the relationships that you, can't, you don't have the power to fix, but God can, God can do a lot, right? And he can bring healing and health and wholeness in your life, whether you get married or whether you don't. But there is no scarlet D in the Bible, right? It's not the final word on your life. Third principle is this, but if you're married right now, fight for your marriage, right? If you're married right now, I want to challenge you to, to fight for it. You may be sitting there this morning and, you know, uh, you walked in, you walked in together to worship, but man, things are really, really tense. I want to say, fight for it, right? Um, if, you're, if you're willing to be patient and pray and make changes, God can do miraculous things. I have, I've literally seen couples who, they, they broke their marriage deeply, um, one couple I think of in particular where there was, there was multiple affairs. The wife had multiple affairs. And then she, she left her husband. She gave him divorce papers. He n- refused to sign them. <laughs> he said, I'm never going to sign them. Uh, the, the courts eventually allowed her divorce, divorce to process through. But, but he waited five years for her. Right? And she continued to go around and she had affairs. Kind of like the book of Hosea, right? She just kept going and going. He said, I just don't feel like God has released me to get remarried. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to pray. Right? They were in their 60s and they showed up at my office. And they said, here's our story. But God has allowed us to forgive and reconcile. And we, want it. we want to get remarried. And they said, you know, uh, would you do our wedding? Because our pastor said no because of my affairs. He won't do the wedding. I'm like, that is absolutely stupid and idiotic. Please don't tell me his name. You know, yeah, I said, of course I will. I would love to do that for you. I said, when do you guys want to get married? And they go, well, we actually, we have the, the wedding license in the car. I said, right now, let's go, right? So they came in with their wedding license in my office. I did, as, I can do a quick service. I mean, we did a super fast service. You know, it was just a few minutes. We got down on our knees and we prayed and we wept. And, you know, they spent the rest of their days on earth together. I, I have seen miracles. And so I've had couples come in and they tell me their story and I can tell them, you know, I've seen worse. And I've seen reconciliation. Are, are you willing to put the effort in? And sometimes folks say, you know, the only reason we're staying together at all is for the kids. I go, awesome, that's enough. I'll, I'll take that, start there, start there. If that's enough to make you just punch pause and to begin to work to save your marriage, then do it, right? Do it, fight for it. Now, on the other hand, I, I understand that on this earth, before the kingdom, sometimes relationships do get so deeply broken that they can't be healed and fixed. I've, I understand that, and I see that. That's why the Lord said, I, I permit you, I give you release if you've 
you've waited and you've prayed and you've tried and you can't bring it back together. Or, you know, maybe it's one of those situations where there was significant abuse and it wouldn't be wise to reconcile. Or there's abandonment and the other person has left and they've gotten remarried. There's nothing you can do. God says, I, I permit you, right? But if you're not at that stage yet, would you be unwilling to work for it? Why? Why work that hard for it? I'm going to give you two reasons. There are actually a lot of reasons. I want to give you two of the primary reasons that marriage matters. The first is this. Marriage is the most vivid model of Christ's love on earth for people to see. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, I want, to love you. I want you to love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, I want you to submit and honor your husband's headship in your home. And then he gets to the end of the paragraph and he says, really, I'm just talking actually about uh, Christ and the church. You're like, wait, I thought you were talking about marriage. He's like, well, I'm talking about marriage, but I'm also talking about Christ and the church because marriage is a, an image or a picture of Christ and the church. And so I'm, I'm really talking about both, but there's a transcendent theological truth to your marriage. And that is husbands, when you love your wives like Christ loved the church, people look in and they say, that's a different kind of love. Husbands, as you say no to yourself, you say no to not just your own desires, but even say no to your own needs, and you sacrifice day in, day out for your wife to feel loved and cared for and supported and safe and secure, wow, the world says, that's a different kind of love. What's that about? Wives, as you honor and respect your husband's headship in the home, what they're seeing is a picture of the way that Jesus submitted to the Father, right? Even though he was equally God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, all equally God in their personhood. So Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, right? Jesus, although existed in the very form of God, right? Equal with God, not less than the Father or less than the Spirit, did not regard that equality with God, something he had to grasp onto, but instead he emptied himself, meaning he was willing to submit himself, surrender his prerogative to choose his own way, which was illustrated when he was in the garden and he's praying and sweat's coming down like drops of blood. And he says, Father, if you can cause this cup of physical suffering and spiritual separation from you, if you can cause this to pass from me, if you can accomplish your world, your your will of redeeming people in any other way, that's what I want. But what I want even more is your will over my will. He surrendered his will, right? So husbands, as you love your wife as Christ loved the church, you provide a picture of the way that Christ sacrificed for us. Wives, you submit yourself and respect your husband. You're providing a picture of the way that Christ gave up his will and his life so that we could have life. So people look in and they see two models of Jesus within the home and they see that and they go, wow, that's different from what I have. I want that. I I need that. And I would argue it's the primary and most vivid picture that God has created on earth to share the gospel. So when I do a wedding, that's what I remind folks. I could look, this not just this wedding, but this marriage is about the gospel. There's a transcendent reality to your relationship with one another. So Paul can say, Husbands do this, wives do this, but really I'm talking about Christ in the church because I want you to show people what I'm like in this relationship. So fight for it, right? Second reason is this. Marriage is the foundational institution of a healthy society. When, when marriages are really strong, then cultures are strong. Because in the beginning, 
God made them male and female, and he said, you male, you female, you're going to come together and become one flesh, that is, you're going to become one family. You were independent, but now you are interdependent. And what I've joined together, don't let anyone ever separate, because it is the foundational institution, the foundational relationship that builds a healthy, strong culture. You know, stronger and more important than local government or state government or national government, stronger, more important than school or any association you could have, you know, your Rotary Club or your HOA or, you know, heaven forbid, Association of Former Students, right? It's even more important than that. If we have strong marriages but not a strong association of former students, we'll still be okay, right? We're just, you know, we just prayed earlier for families, victims of, of two mass shootings. What, what is that about? You know, and there are so many more shootings that are happening, particularly in in, in inner city, but then there's crumbling not just in inner city, but even in suburbia, and so much anxiety and fear and depression in the generation that's emerging. Where does that come from? Well, so much of it comes from the collapse of the home. It comes from the collapse of the home. So, so church, what an opportunity we have when we live differently in our marriages to provide light for the world, right? Not perfect marriages, but marriages in which when we hurt one another, we forgive and reconcile, right? They're not perfect, they won't be perfect, but where we really shine is when we, we say we're, we're all in, and we're not going to quit, and we're going to forgive and reconcile and heal. That's really different for the world, and so we can provide a model for This is really what's going to make for a healthy culture, healthy society overall, so those are two of the big reasons. There are many more, but I want to give you now just some real practical ideas. I'm going to give you five tips for a healthy marriage, right? Let's get really practical for just a minute. The first is this. If you're single, um, there's a, a few of you out there, then I would just say simply choose wisely. Now, um, I'm not necessarily advocating for arranged marriages except for my own kids, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, get input, right? If it's not somebody else arranging it, ask, ask for help, right? Because once your heart gets involved, man, your mind starts shutting down. So are you willing to let friends and family give you input? Or are you willing to let that person be around them and be around people in all different settings with, with friends, with family. I think uh, one of the most important is be with them around people who are serving, right? How do they treat the people who are serving them, right? And in a sense, the people who are below them in station in life. How do they treat um, people they pass on the street who are begging? How do they treat a, a waiter or a waitress who's just serving? How do they treat people? I mean, that just shows a lot about character, right? But get lots of input so you make a really, really wise choice. The, 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 the black and white line, so to speak, is marry a believer if you're a believer. But I would say wisdom would be marry someone who loves Jesus like you love Jesus. Right? Years ago when, when we were doing college ministry, Tristan and I used to um, give a dating talk. And we'd say, look, just run as fast as you can with Jesus and then look right or left and see who's running with you. Because if you want to love Jesus for a lifetime, you better have somebody that you're not having to carry spiritually for a lifetime. Right? Somebody who's going to pull with you. For a lifetime, right? So if you're single and you're still about to that point, you're making the choice or you're looking, choose wisely and get lots of good input. Second, seek input before you're in crisis. Uh, I get just like really angry, frustrated when people show up at my door and they've already quit. <laughs> like, why are we even having this conversation? But I will tell you a lot of times for for me and Matt and Blake and for our elders, we don't see people until they've really already quit and they've completely given up hope. And I'd say, look, 
get input before that point in time. If, you, if you're struggling right now, um, our elders and their wives would love to sit down and talk with you about how to make your marriage better, how to bring healing and reconciliation. Their marriages are not perfect, but their marriages are healthy and they're whole. And they can talk to you even about some of their own conflicts and how they've reconciled in those conflicts, right? So if you're, if you're struggling, get input now. We have a great marriage ministry. Groups are starting up in the fall. Man, get into it. Um, husbands, I would encourage you, when you go home tonight, open up your computer, get on Amazon, and order uh, maybe the best book you can find on marriage. Order two copies. Uh, show it to your wife and say, honey, I just feel like we have a wonderful marriage, but it could be even better. Why don't we read this book together? Oh my gosh, just imagine. I'm not going to ask ladies to raise their hand and embarrass their husbands, but wouldn't that just freak you out? <laughs> just go like, oh my gosh, right? He still loves me like when we were dating. He's still, he's still pursuing. He still thinks there's intrigue in me. He still wants to know me better, right? right? Before it's in crisis, let's make it better. When Tristan and I were, were engaged, I told her, I said, you know, here's my goal. I want us to have the best marriage that's ever existed on the planet Earth for all of human history. What do you think? Right? Why would you aim lower than that? Right? Why would you? I'm, I am competitive, right? I mean, you see, but I'm thinking, yeah, man, we will have the best ever. That's us. People look at us and go, oh my God. Right? That's, why not? Why not? And why not infuse that desire and that longing with one another that we want to grow together for a lifetime and not be stuck? Right? So get input before you're in a crisis. But if you're in a crisis, please, don't, just because of what I said about it frustrating me, don't hold back, right? Come get help. Uh, come talk to me afterwards, and I can point you to some of our, our elders and their wives uh, to get you some help. Guard your marriage. Guard your marriage, protect your marriage, Satan hates your marriage. Satan absolutely hates your marriage, and he wants to destroy your marriage. He destroys your marriage, he destroys your spiritual life, potentially, he destroys culture. If you can get lots of marriage destroyed, so protect your marriage, right? Protect it. Uh, again, early on in our marriage, Trissy and I went to have uh, dinner with some friends of ours, and they'd been married a few years, so we sat down, we had dinner, and during dinner, they just kind of nicked at each other, right? It's just like, tick, 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 you know, just little kind of sarcastic digs, and in there, and it's like, ah, oh, it's kind of it's uncomfortable, whatever, ha <laughs> you know, and they're laughing, but it, you can tell they're not really laughing, it's just kind of hurting a little bit, and then we got in the car afterwards, and she's like burst into tears, she's sobbing, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't think the meal was that bad, what are we, what's, you know, where are the tears coming from, and she goes, that's not gonna be us, is it, ah, I go, no, that will never be us, and we're not spending time with them again, right? <laughs> We're not going to deal with that fallout again. And so we chose four couples that we really admired their marriage. They're further along in life than us. We said, for the first year, we're going to, we're going to focus the bulk of our social time with them. And we're going to ask them questions about marriage, and we're going to probe, because we love the way that they love one another. And we know that we become like the people that we're around, right? So we said, anything else that's outside, we're going to label it before we go. That's ministry. <laughs> that's ministry. Right? This is where we need to focus. And I would encourage you, no matter how long you've been married, your, your closest circle of friends need to be people who love being married and love one another. Right? Not wives or husbands who sit around and take digs at their spouses. You don't have time for that, ladies. And you don't have time for that, men. That's, 
That's Satan putting the, the fox in the vineyard, right? Lighten his tail on fire and burning down your house. Guard your marriage, protect your marriage, be around people who love marriage. Fourth, speak kindly. And I say that and you go, well, duh, right. But um, the challenge is after we've been married for a while, we begin to take one another for granted and we'll say something to a spouse that we never would have said while we were dating, right? Speak kindly. Here's a fact. We are all a lot more fragile than we want people to think. And we're most fragile and most vulnerable in the context of this relationship that is required to be very intimate. Right? So spouses... We can say things to one another that it hurts more than if anybody else ever said it. And even if it's subtle. You know, there were some studies done by Rutgers University as a center on marriage. And they did some studies years ago. One of the things they discovered is that they could, they could predict with like 98% accuracy in the first year if a couple would get divorced. It's really spooky. And what they discovered was this. Uh, if there was um, contempt in the conversation early on, measured by silly things like uh, the husband rolled his eyes when the wife spoke, right? Or made a sarcastic joke about her cooking, her cleaning, where she's dressed, right? The wife kind of, whatever, about him providing and his job, right? Those little contemptuous, tiny little digs with almost 98% accuracy they could predict in the first year of marriage if couples would get divorced. People, we are fragile, your spouse knows what he or she needs to work on in life. I can almost guarantee you. They almost certainly don't need your reminders every day. What they do need from you is courage. Right? They need courage to lean into the difficulties of life. So they need hundreds and hundreds of compliments and thousands of words of praise and affirmation. And if you think it and you don't say it, you're stealing from your spouse, right? Give it and give it and give it and give it. And just pour it on and make them rich and strong, right? They know already from the world and from the Holy Spirit the things that they need to work on. Once in a while, once in a while, you, you have to address something with your spouse. But that better be after you've invested a ton in their heart and in their courage, right? Now, fifth, practice thankfulness. Right, practice thankfulness. Uh, my assignment for you, if you're married, is today I want you to write out 20 things that you are thankful for for your spouse. Right, and if you're married, you've got 20, right? There was some reason you said, I'll give my entire life to this person all my future, right? There was something back there. And maybe you have to work hard to remember it and find it. That's because your muscle of thank thankfulness is completely atrophied and you're weak. And today you're going to start getting strong again, right? Write down literally 20 things. Um, it was awesome. One of our, one of our couples, uh, the wife literally before uh, she walked out, handed it to her husband. She'd already written out 20 things. I'm like, yes. One person applied the sermon. <laughs> um, it may be that 20 is difficult. It may be that 20 is easy. But one of the ways that Satan, um, he tempts us and makes us vulnerable is we begin to think about that one or two things that we don't have in our spouse. And then we begin to look for it somewhere else. Not realizing that this person doesn't have the other 99 that my spouse does have. They just have those one or two, and I'm, I'm open and now I'm vulnerable. But when I practice thankfulness, and I practice gratitude, and I say those words to my spouse, it reminds me of why I love that person, 
reminds them, and it gives them courage, right? So I want you to just this week, literally, right, literally today, you write your list of 20 and give it to your spouse and begin to rebuild that muscle that may have, have atrophied a bit. Uh, if you're single, do it for a, a friend or a roommate. Right? Practice gratitude in your relationships. And you've got a friend or a roommate or a brother or a sister, and you can hand them a list. Man, that's just, that, that breathes life and hope into people. Right? And it gets you prepped as you're saying, God, teach me contentment as I wait and make me into that kind of person who will be hopefully a better spouse at some point in time because I speak those words of life to the people around me and the people that I love. Okay. As we close, uh, this morning we're going to celebrate communion together. And I feel like it's a really wonderful way for us to remember that we were relationally, we were, we were fractured, right? We were separated because of our sin. And Jesus said, I don't, I'm not content with that. I'm going to chase you down. Right, that's what grace is. God and Christ chased after us to reconcile us back to himself. Nothing needed to change in him, but something needed to change in us. And so Jesus, he gave, he gave everything so that we could be back in relationship with him. He gave his body represented by the bread, his blood represented by the cup. Why? So that we could be fixed because we were broken. So I want us, I want us to just take a few moments as we're served and just give God thanks that he sent Jesus and then maybe ask the Spirit of God to search your own heart. Maybe there's an area in your, your marriage in which um, you've spoken unkindly or you've thought a word of praise and haven't said it. You've held it back. Um, or maybe there's an area in which um, you need to offer forgiveness, extend forgiveness, or you need to seek forgiveness that you need to do and you can do because Jesus has done that for you. Right? So let's let the Spirit examine our hearts a little bit. If I can ask the servers to come forward, we will wait until everybody's served and then we'll take the cup and the bread together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks to his Father who provides all that we need for life. He broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Let's take the bread together. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's the covenant that will give you forgiveness of sins, removal of sins forever. And it's only found in my blood. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, thank you for giving us your body broken. The suffering that you were willing to undergo because of our debt of sin. Suffering even to the point of surrendering your life entirely. Blood poured out on our behalf. Thank you for that. Thank you that you didn't leave us dead in sin. Instead, you you chose to chase after us and to reconcile us and restore us. And I pray, Father, that we would reflect that that gift that Jesus gave to us. That we would be people who who forgive and restore and reconcile. And Lord, even when when we hit a relationship that's just beyond what we can accomplish, we would trust you uh, to do a miraculous thing. Even when a relationship gets broken and um, it's not in our power to fix it. Yet, Father, we can be people who still who still love and forgive and don't grow bitter. And others can look in at our lives and see that we're really different people only because of the power of your Spirit and the work of Christ in our lives. Father, I pray that we would reflect that in a really beautiful and bright and shining way in the world.